Father God, thank you. Thank you that we have the freedom to gather in a place like this and to sing your praise and to actually sing words that say we would be willing to sacrifice. We would be willing to lay down our lives for the sake of following Jesus. And Jesus, would that be true? Would that be true? Would you teach us now as we enter into the study of your word? For we need this, God. It is your word by the power of your spirit that changes us and makes us more like your son, Jesus. Let us hear from you. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we begin a study of a book in the New Testament that is actually quite unique. Uh, It's the book of Hebrews. And uh, a book that endeavors to set before us the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels, uh, over Moses, over the Levitical priesthood, over the priesthood of Melchizedek, uh, over the temple sacrifices, and I might as well just put it in there, also over us. The supremacy of Jesus over us, over our lives. The author wants us to know who Jesus is. The author wants us to understand what it is that Jesus did, that Jesus accomplished. One of the things that makes uh, this book different than other New Testament books is it's full of mystery. It's got all kinds of mysteries going on. Uh, For example, well, William Lane, whose commentary I've been reading on this book and really enjoying, he says this, he says, Hebrews is a delight for the person who enjoys puzzles. And that's, that's true. Puzzles like, for example, authorship. Who wrote this book? Or puzzles like the audience, who was it written to? Uh, What were their circumstances? All of these things are speculated on by interpreters and have been ever since the book circulated to various churches in the first century. Once upon a time, someone argued that Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. Augustine and Jerome, people like them, made that argument, even though they were fully aware that the language and the style of writing of this book was very different than all of Paul's other writings. Others argued that it was Aquila and Priscilla who authored this book together. Uh, Martin Luther thought that maybe Apollos had written it. And that's, that's a reasonable guess. Others offered names like Barnabas or names like Silas. Uh, bottom line, we don't know who wrote this book. What we do know is that it was written to people living in a time and living in a place where identifying yourself openly and honestly as a follower of Jesus Christ would cost you. It would cost you. For them, it meant marginalization in that culture. It meant loss of job, loss of businesses. It meant hostility and persecution. It meant for many of them, loss of property. It meant for a few of them, loss of life because they follow Jesus. In other words, following Jesus meant real suffering. And uh, that's really why this book was written. Uh, The writer of this book is deeply concerned for the spiritual well-being of the people receiving this letter. Uh, Some of them were falling away. That's what was happening. Some of them are no longer gathering together regularly and consistently with the rest of the church for the purpose of worshiping Almighty God, worshiping Jesus Christ. Some are apparently returning to their Jewish roots, their Jewish 
beliefs because Judaism, after all, was an easier religion to practice. Judaism was an officially sanctioned religion within the Roman Empire. And at first, Christians kind of navigated under that radar, right, under that cover of Judaism. But as time went on, it, it became more and more obvious that Christians and traditional Jews, were, they, they weren't the same thing, not really. And the Roman Empire decided not to sanction Christianity. That didn't actually happen until the mid-300s, so several hundred years from this time. And so the writer sends his readers kind of a, you could call it a hybrid letter, really. Uh, it reads a lot like a sermon or a, a homily, if you will, but it concludes just like a letter. It's kind of a hybrid. The author actually calls his letter in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 22, a word of exhortation. And that's really a good description of the book of Hebrews. It is a word. It's many words of exhortation. And so these messages that are going to come to us out of this book, they are exhortations to us. They're a, hey, heads up, people. Because it's interesting, I think our circumstances are becoming more and more like possibly the circumstances of the ones who received this letter in the first century. This letter begins unusually. It has no address to the recipients. It has no personal identification. Whereas Paul and other New Testament writers, when they wrote letters, they would say something like Paul, an apostle, you know, yada, yada, to the church at Galatia. They would identify themselves and they would identify the, the recipients or Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That, that was a typical way that a letter would begin. But in Hebrews, it, it just doesn't do that. In fact, here's how it begins. And these are the words of God. It begins this way, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of, God's, of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. <laughs> Boy, I read that and I think, wow. What a fantastic beginning to a sermon. Not like this sermon. <laughs> wow. It's a beautiful exhortation to us about the majesty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Something else we notice in this book right away, because of the use of the Greek Old Testament scriptures, what we call today the Septuagint, uh, these would have been the scriptures that the Hellenistic Jews of that time were most familiar with. It was a translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, Greek one uh, translated in, in the city of Alexandria uh, about th the third century BC, so several centuries before Jesus. And because the Old Testament quotes in this book make use of the Septuagint, uh, so thoroughly, we can be pretty certain that this letter was, was meant for Hellenistic Jews. That is, Jews who were scattered around the Roman Empire, who were first and foremost Greek-speaking Jews, many of whom didn't even speak Hebrew. 
And these Jews had become followers of Jesus, not from observing or listening to Jesus himself, but through hearing the preaching of the gospel or the story about Jesus. And most likely, they, these Jews, uh, they converted and they made up a, a Jewish house church, perhaps in and around Rome. There's good reason to believe that. We don't know that for sure. But that would explain things like the author's use of this postscript in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 24. He says, those from Italy send you their greetings. You see what he's saying? He's referring to people who've been run out of Italy because of persecution. And he's, he's writing to these ones who are still in Rome and he's, because they would have known some of these individuals who were sending their greetings. Now, we can tell from the letter that the author knew his readers really well. He knew their past. They had been persecuted and they had held together and they had stood strong in the face of all kinds of persecution. He also knew their present because as I said, some are actually now leaving the faith. And so the writer of this letter is very, very concerned for them. He has a pastoral concern. Some seem to have been thinking, well, why if, if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, as we've come to believe, as, as we constantly hear taught, if Jesus loves us so much, if Jesus is committed to our joy and our blessing and to bringing the kingdom of God up there, down here, if Jesus is the Savior, well, then why all this suffering? Why all this hardship? Why hasn't he come back already? Why is their is there question? And the answer of this book is, I'll just give it to you up front. I mean, here's the answer. Jesus' life and Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection are the fulfillment of everything. Everything the Old Testament talked about, prophesied, pointed to, and predicted, Jesus fulfills it all. He is a better everything. <laughs> and life, true life, is found only in him. In him, a person moves from weariness to rest, the author will argue. In Jesus, a person moves from alienation to God to incorporation into the family of God, the writer will argue. A person moves from condemnation to salvation, from isolation to God to inclusion in the family of God, the household of God, the temple of God, the people of God, the writer will argue. And the only way all of this happens, he says, is by fixing our eyes on Jesus. That's Hebrews 12. That's what we'll get to in about two years. The only way all of this happens is by paying the most careful attention to Jesus. It's by not neglecting such a great salvation. That's chapter two. That's coming soon. That is the message of this book. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Nothing else. And that message begins right from chapter one, verse one. Again, in the past, God spoke. 
He spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. And this speech of God is not vague. It's not clouded, it's not equivocal, it's not unclear in any way whatsoever. It is in fact very precise and very exact. Verse three says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That word translated representation is literally the word for character. Uh, The writer of Hebrews is telling us something really, really important, worth underlining and and reflecting on, uh, in fact. Uh, He is saying, oh, you want to know God? Because you see, he wanted his recipients, the recipients of this letter, to truly know God. He said, you want to know exactly who he's like and, and what he is like? Well, then look at the son. Look at Jesus. He's a person. He's just like you in that respect, but he is also the radiance of God's glory. Our God doesn't want us to just have information about him. I mean, we need information about him, but not just information. He wants us to have a relationship with him, a connectedness with him that is intimate. And so he sends us his son who is the exact representation of his being. You see, our God isn't just a force field kind of God. He's he's not a mysterious energy. He's not a spiritual life force. He's a person. He came in the flesh and he speaks and he thinks and he feels and he loves and he acts and he serves, and he communicates, and not just in bits and pieces. You see, in verse 1, it says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That phrase, various ways, uh, polytrophos, literally means in pieces. The writer of Hebrews is trying to set up a contrast here and a very important one. He's saying in the past... And in many times and in many pieces, God has revealed himself to us. That's the Old Testament, friends. A little more revelation, a little more revelation, a little more revelation about who God is and what God is like. Always in pieces. Always partial revelations of him. But you see the writer of Hebrews is saying, well, not anymore. Now he's revealed himself in his Son. Jesus is not a partial revelation of God. Jesus is, in fact, God. Friends, if you want to know God and who he is and what he's like and what he's done and what he's going to do, and there's no more important or clearer revelation to us than Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is, in fact, the last or the, the final word on God. There are no additions to be added to Jesus. There's nothing lacking in the revelation of God that Jesus gives us. It's what Jesus was getting at one time when he was scolding some Jewish leaders who wanted actually to kill him. 
This is what he said to them. He said, you search the scriptures. And that's a good thing because you actually learn about God and even about Jesus from the scriptures. That's where we go to learn these things. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, in that search, you have eternal life. But Jesus says, it is they, the scriptures that bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us, basically. Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament symbols of temple and sacrifice. All the Old Testament types of prophet and priest and king. A prophet who would come one day like Moses. Priests who would come and offer sacrifice once and for all. A king who would rule in justice and perfection and righteousness and holiness. We need that king. All of scripture says Jesus points directly to him. All of scripture. And that is great news. Or it isn't depending on how you look at it. Let me explain. You see, Jesus is either the way, the truth, and the life through which you know God, or if you refuse him, he's a stumbling block, a very serious one. The apostle Paul said to the Christians who were in Corinth one time, he said, we preach Christ crucified. I mean, that is the gospel. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews because they were rejecting him and foolishness, foolishness to Gentiles. And here's the deal, friends. The Bible says that Jesus is God's absolute non-negotiable. The apostle Paul preached this one time in Acts 4. He said, salvation is found in no one else. No one else, nothing else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And here's what's interesting to me in this. There's a lot that's interesting, but this in particular. In any relationship between two people, there are always certain non-negotiables, certain finalities, if you will. And intimacy of relationship depends on you accepting those finalities those non-negotiables. Uh, I've been married for 44, almost 45 years. And um, my wife is an extrovert. Whatever the chart is on extrovertism, she's just off the top of that chart on extrovertism. Uh, she loves gathering with people and with family and never, ever, ever, ever gets too much of it. She loves being outside in God's creation. I woke up early this morning. I started going over this sermon, writing this sermon so I'd have something to say. And, uh, and where do you think Holly was? She got up with me. Where do you think she was? I, I, I called to her, Holly. I was going to ask her to bring me a cup of coffee. No answer. She's got on a winter coat, her flannel pajama bottoms. She's sitting outside in the cold, cold weather and I asked her why I saw her sitting out there and she said, well, I just wanted to hear the birds. That's my wife. She loves God's creation. 
She loves birds. She loves trees. She loves insects. She loves spiders. She loves snakes. She loves flowers. She loves ordering her life by using a sophisticated system. It's called the pile system. Any of you know this system? (laughs) And she is stubborn. And she will tell you her opinion. And she loves color. Oh my gosh. My house is yellow. This is just who she is. If you try to change these things about her, you will fail. And you will break the relationship. And you will be trying to make her something she is not made to be. These things are non-negotiables. They're part of who God has made her. They are finalities. They are the last word. This is just who Holly, my wife, is as a person. And if you are going to have a relationship with her, you will have to accept these things about her. And if you can't or you won't do that, you won't have a relationship with her. And friends, quite honestly, this is how all relationships work. If you want intimacy with a person, you must accept certain non-negotiables or finalities about them. And friends, this is also true with regards to our relationship to God, God Almighty. God is who he says he is. God is who he reveals himself to be. And God has told us that in these last days, this is Hebrews 1 verse 2, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. It intrigues me sometimes when I, uh, when I hear someone say, oh, I'm a Christian, I, I, I follow Jesus, but then they reject Jesus' teaching or they reject Jesus' practice. They reject his rhythms. They reject what he says. I, I heard a person say recently, uh, this is someone who very definitely makes the claim to, to follow Jesus, but they also say that they doubt seriously if there is really any such thing as hell. And they doubt if there is any such thing, that if there were such a thing, that Jesus or God Almighty would send anyone there. Why? Because God and Jesus are are loving, this person says. And so why would they do that? Friends, Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, he said, For even the Son of Man uh, came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. Not all, but for many, he says. He also said one time to his inner circle of disciples that he was warning them, he was warning them about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and, and not to fear their power or fear their authority. He said this, he said, but I will show you whom you should fear. I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed, after you have died, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Jesus said. And here's my point. Jesus reveals to us the true identity of God. Says who? Says God. Says who? says Jesus. And when Jesus tells you something you don't like, which he will, and when Jesus tells you something you don't want to believe or accept, well, 
If you follow Jesus, you don't get to to change who he is. Uh, You must change who you are. It's what being a follower means. Because you see, Jesus is God's last word. Jesus is God's non-negotiable. In fact, he tells us what is right and he tells us what is wrong. Uh, He tells us what is good. He tells us what is evil. He tells us what to do or he shows us what to do and he tells us what not to do. We don't decide these things for ourselves. Jesus decides these things for us. So in everything, friends, from race relations to gender or sexual preferences or orientation to use of our resources to any and every kind of legitimate justice issue. A Jesus follower follower, follows Jesus. Not our own often sinful, broken preferences. So question, are you doing that? Are you you working to align your your beliefs and your practices with who Jesus is and what Jesus says? Because that's what you're called to do if you follow him. It's a loaded question. The point is, people who follow Jesus submit themselves to Jesus' teaching and to Jesus' way of life. What he says and does about worship, about community, about service. Uh, we accept, we, we follow, we imitate. What he says about loving my enemies, what, what he says about the first being last and the last being first, what he says about me being a sinner, what he says about judgment and judgment to come, what he says about heaven, what he says about hell, what he says about salvation. I don't get to critique it or ignore it or change it, except to my own peril. Friends, if you are picking and choosing what you like and don't like in the Bible, if you accept some things and ignore others, well then your God is a God of your own making and not the God of the Bible. And that is a very scary place to be, spiritually speaking. And what that means, spiritually speaking, is you're you're not not really following Jesus. You see, Jesus accepted the Old Testament as God's authoritative word. Again and again, he would cite the Old Testament scriptures as being the words of God. And and we also believe that, that Jesus inspired by his Spirit's work, Jesus inspired the writers of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and Paul, and Peter, and James, and Jude, and whoever the writer of Hebrews was. All of these were followers of Jesus, inspired by his spirit to write the words that they wrote. So to make yourself judge and jury of what you accept or reject in the Bible is to set yourself up over Jesus himself. The Bible claims to be God's inspired word. You're all familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good 
work. The Word of God is what equips us and prepares us and makes us more like Christ so that we can represent Christ to a world that desperately needs to know about Him. And the book of Hebrews 2, we're going to find out, this is going to be great when we get there, uh, is one of those books in the New Testament that has a lot to say about uh, the Bible being the Word of God and about the Bible's power and about the Bible's authority. In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer says, For the Word of God is living and active. And if you've ever read it carefully and intentionally and openly, you know that to be true. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the Bible, the word of God. The Bible convicts. The Bible encourages. The Bible judges. The Bible sets before us the name, the only name given under heaven whereby we can be saved. The, the, Bible, the Bible convicts right down to the intentions of the heart. And if you don't accept the fact that the Bible is God speaking to you or that it must judge your thoughts and your intentions then, you know, I would just ask you, how will this God of yours ever speak into your life? How will he ever contradict you or confront you? Because you are rejecting his non-negotiable, his truth, his son, his will. And to do that means you have no personal relationship with him. Folks, if you want a personal and intimate relationship with God, you've got to wrestle with and accept what are his non-negotiables, what are his finalities. Otherwise, you won't know him, not really. And here's the deal. While Jesus reveals God in all his loving glory, absolutely, amen. While Jesus reveals God in all of his forgiving grace and magnificent mercy, absolutely, Jesus also reveals to us God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness and God's hatred of sin. Jesus is God's biggest non-negotiable. In fact, Jesus is God's hardest, roughest edge He will challenge and condemn your legalism and your self-righteousness. And at the same time, he will challenge and condemn your sin and your shame. This is why Jesus said one time, he said, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. In heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own family, his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Of me. And the worthiness that's being talked about here is, is not deservingness. That's not what's being really talked about here. 
it's another way of saying what Jesus is, is saying here is just, uh, is not with me. And so following Jesus is all about priorities, isn't it? Jesus doesn't want us to, to hate members of our family or not love them. Absolutely, that's not the case. But he wants us to follow and love him more. Always. Following Jesus is all about priorities. It's all about uh, taking up crosses. It's all about dying to self and living to Christ. Not to do that means we are not worthy of him. We are not with him. And why is that? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is above everything and everyone in all the cosmos. He is, in fact, the number one priority, period. He says the sun is the radiance of God's glory. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. Understand that description is kind of like, it's kind of like Hebrew code language, really. In the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, when Moses led Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, remember how God appeared to Israel in that time, in that place. It was in the form of a fiery pillar of, of cloud. Remember, the pillar would lead them and it would also protect them. At one point, uh, it moved to protect them while they were crossing the Red Sea. And that pillar prevented Pharaoh and his chariots from crossing after them. They couldn't get past it, couldn't get around it. Later on, this fiery pillar of cloud leads them through the wilderness. When they actually come to the Mount, si the Mount of Sinai, the fiery cloud descends on the mountain. Remember, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's smoke. No one could approach the mountain for fear of dying for fear of death because of God's holiness and God's presence. Later, uh, years later, uh, this very fiery pillar cloud shows up again at the dedication of the temple, Solomon's temple. The fiery cloud descends on the temple, fills uh, the temple with God's glory and with God's radiance and all the people fall down to the ground because this is the glory of God, friends. It's God in a form that they could see, a form so brilliant and so beautiful and so awesome, so majestic, so magnificent, so weighty that the people are just overcome with fear and awe of who God is, God Almighty. But here in Hebrews, we're being told that Jesus is, here's the code language, the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. The Jesus that we see uh, living and loving and dying and teaching and worshiping in synagogues and rebuking and uh, forgiving and suffering and rising from the dead. This Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And you know what? We, we don't like that, if we're being honest. And a lot of people in Jesus' day didn't like that either. The first century Roman Empire was a pluralistic religious society, just like our own. There were lots of gods. Uh, there were lots of religious views competing for attention and for place and for priority. You were okay as long as you said, hey, everybody's God is good. <laughs> you want me to bow down to the emperor? Sure, I'll do that. Good. But I've got my own God too, you know. Oh, that's good. That's good. Whatever works for you, you see. And everybody's preferences, everybody's morals, everybody's views of sin, of heaven, of hell, of sex, and so are fine and good and acceptable if that works for you. 
It was into that culture, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus isn't like any other prophet. Jesus isn't like any other religious leader. Jesus isn't like other angelic messengers sent from God. Jesus will not share his glory. Why? Jesus is God. He is the only one true and living God. And that claim right there is what made Christianity so completely objectionable. Then and now. The writer of Hebrews exhorts us to embrace and to submit to this radical, radical truth about Jesus Christ. If Jesus is God, well, then we must be willing to take all that we have, all that that we are, and just lay it down at his feet in surrender, in worship, in obedience. There is, there's no middle ground on this, really. Not really. There, there's no taking just, you know, a, a little bit of Jesus, this bit that I like. Jesus, we're told, sustains all things by his powerful word. That's, that's who Jesus is. Friends, this Jesus will not be your personal life assistant. He's not going to be your, you know, your life culture or your old buddy because that's not who he is. He will only be your God. <laughs> yeah, I don't like it either. Not really. There's a part of me that doesn't like this. This is what makes the proclamation of Jesus, whether it's in London or whether it's in Edinburgh, so objectionable to so many. And I got news for you. I have a hunch it's going to become more and more objectionable here where we live too. You see, Jesus will not be your buddy. He, he will be your God. Jesus forces us, frankly, to be quite extreme. I admit this is extreme because Jesus himself is extreme. He's extremely powerful, extremely glorious, extremely holy, extremely loving, extremely humble, extremely committed to you. Verse three, what did it say? It said, after he had provided purification, cleansing for sin. That's how committed he is. Unto death. He took our sin upon himself. He bore our punishment from his own father. He experienced our death and separation from God. He bore our guilt. He was and is extremely committed to his bride, to his church, to you and to me. And when we put our faith in him and follow him, he gives us his life, life everlasting. He gives us his righteousness a perfect righteousness, not like the righteousness that we create. And so at the end of all this, we're, we're forced, we're just literally forced to ask, so, so what do we do with all this? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and we'll get to this again, but in Hebrews 2, this is what he says. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Friends, are you drifting? 
For since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. There was a message first proclaimed and lived out and accomplished by Jesus and then proclaimed by those who followed him, the apostles and close followers. And that message is what we call the gospel. It's what we read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's it's the embodiment of, of all of what the New Testament teaches. It's the full message about Jesus. But notice what it says. It says, we must pay, the writer of Hebrews says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Are you drifting? This phrase, the most careful attention, actually, it's a combination of several Greek words that that when combined create a very strong phrase. The word attention literally means obsession. We get the word obsession from it. It's talking about extreme focus. The word most careful literally means very great, excessive, extremely emphatic, surpassing. So you could put all of this together in terms of what these words mean. And you could probably translate that little part of the text this way. You could say, we must be excessively, emphatically, surpassingly obsessed with what we have heard the gospel about who Jesus is so that we do not drift away. You get the idea? Friends, this is serious stuff, Jesus. And this is telling us that when we hear the good news about Jesus, we cannot hear it apathetically. We cannot hear it with indifference. We have to hear it so that we become excessively, emphatically, surpassingly obsessed with Jesus. Because as we will see as we continue on in this study, Jesus is not just some angel giving us proclamations from God. He's not just some prophet who says, thus saith the Lord. He is God. He is the God who says, truly, truly, I say to you, And you know what he says to you and what he says to me? He says, come follow me. That's the best invitation you or I will ever get. Following him is the one thing that saves us. Jesus. Following him is the one thing that can change us and transform us. Jesus. 